Hello and welcome to the One World Podcast. I'm Joe Haddo and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by an award-winning writer and poet from Galway to talk about her debut novel, Keenan Hughes. Welcome. Hello, welcome. I, I got your name right. You did. Nailed it in one. I'm amazed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I've been agonising over that name. Yeah, I feel honoured. I really feel so honoured whenever someone pronounces it pronounces it right that's not to say you know I get too angry if they haven't but it's just so so refreshing it's like oh yes we don't have to have this conversation (laughs) c-a-o-i-l-i-n-n that's it it's actually c-a-o-i-l-f-h-i-o-n-n but it's been slightly anglicised just to make it uh, (laughs) to make people's heads not explode Um, well I think it worked for me I, I sort of was staring at it for a while and then it just it just started saying its name to me Make so your sense. name made sense to me from just osmosis almost. okay fantastic it actually means fair and slender so you might just you know look at me and think oh keelan <laughs> <laughs> that's what would have happened actually if yeah. i hadn't have been agonizing over it Clearly. i would have just seen yeah you, even yeah. though you know i'm dark hair well pretty much gray by now <laughs> and uh yeah the, no, no amount of gym will rectify the the amount of uh, muffins i love so but we'll, well, I was, I was, so I've been staring at the front cover of your, your first novel, your new novel, mm-hmm. which is just a, a stunning book. And, and when I got sent it by One World, I was reading all these fabulous quotes that were on the jacket and, you know, from these amazing writers and thinking, all right, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be good then. You must be pretty pleased with, with everything up to now in terms of the, the recognition of it from fellow authors. Authors are lovely people. Um, I'm 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 terribly terribly misanthropic generally, <laughs> and now I haven't really got an excuse to be misanthropic just in this in this moment. But no, authors have been so um, wonderful and generous, and I'm, and you know, I suppose if you asked me before this stage, who if I could pick, if you could only have readers approve of you, authors approve of you. Or booksellers. <laughs> I think I might have chosen booksellers because uh, they have the most. Um, they 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 they, uh, they affect uh, the the book industry is the wrong word, but what gets read and what what gets shared and talked about the most. Um, but but now uh, now I feel pretty comfortable having at least a few authors I really admire, um, and they might just they might be lying. It might be all hyperbole, but uh, but it, it's a consolation. And on on the worst days, you know. Um, I, I'll, you know, I actually did. This is unbelievably narcissistic. But one afternoon, I put side by side a blurb um, from a really just a hero author side by side with a Goodreads review that came in, the very first Goodreads review, which said she gave up at chapter two because she found Gail to be so obnoxious and hideous that she couldn't bear to stand her world space for a book. So she, she gave up, gave it um, one star. Um, just you know, <laughs> to just throw that in there. So I put that beside, you know, uh, uh, the, some lovely hyperbole from a, from a hero author, and um, and I felt if there's no metaphor for life, you know, if there is, if there's no, this this comes close. <laughs> That's a very good thing to do. Very sort of grounding <laughs> Centering, thing to do, yeah. right? And and of course, the, the book we're talking about is Orchid and the Wasp, uh, which is coming out in in June, published by One World, and and here we are in their offices, sat at what I believe is their. Um, board table or something it looks mm. looks very sort of grand and important very very, very formal it's, Pro- it's probably the place where you're they decided to publish your novel maybe it is yeah <laughs> i came in here with my agent and we had a 
uh, session where we, we were supposed to be very kind of emotionally distant and hard to read but you know I just completely fell in love with Juliet maybe so I, I think I had my heart on my sleeve then and just uh, she, she really believed in the in the book and in the um, in the character and didn't kind of want to water her down and um, so that it, and she felt like a, the right match for this book so it was a happy I have happy memories of this table <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to be back then. Yeah, it's lovely. Especially now as, as the book is coming out. Um, so tell us of Gail and, and, just, and just in your own words a little bit about the, the concept and the plot of Orchid and the Wasp. Okay. Um, well, ooh, I can read you uh, <laughs> the one-liner from the, from the flap copy, which is, An unforgettable young woman navigates Dublin, London and New York, striving to build a life raft for her loved ones in the midst of economic and familial collapse. That that's 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 it. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> that's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, so it it spans ten years. The novel and uh, it's picaresque in structure. Uh, if you've read any picaresque novels, they tend to follow a character through social strata, um, kind of climbing. Uh, you, you tend it, so they tend to kind of present a s- social landscape as well as maybe um, kind of. Um, a coming of age story or a family saga or th- those kind of elements can be in the plot as well but um, something like William Thackeray's Vanity Fair mm. um, that kind of has a similar structure so um, uh, the the character it, the book basically follows the character and um, follows her career and her ideology and um, she has her own agenda as well um, which I suppose is the through line of the plot um, but at the, in beginning writing the book, I didn't know where she would take me. So she really leads the book. Well, let's talk about Gail then, because I think this is a character that had been around in your head, certainly for a while. Mm-hmm. And and you say she she led you. How much of her did you know as you started writing? And then what became more of her and more of the story the further down the line you got? Yeah, so... It really struck me. I mean, Gail had always been in the back of my head as a type of character I wished to see more in books. Um, the types of characters that I'd be drawn to in books and in films and in real life, especially in real life. Um, and I just couldn't find them. So to get to, just on a very basic level, any book that follows a female character that's driven where the plot and the whole story of the novel is driven by the character's ideology and actions where it doesn't center on a relationship where where she's not you know it's not about her 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 love interest or um you know that there's it's very very hard to find any novels um that 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 follow a woman's kind of career like that uh, you know or just just even her ideas i mean you, you've got a few writers now starting to come out with books like this like Rachel Cusk is one example and she I think the character in that in that trilogy has children um but the thrust of the book doesn't come from that it very much just comes from the 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 female protagonist's um intellectual engagement and and doesn't need even to be non-emotional intellectual and emotional engagement with being alive um, and it sounds like such a basic thing i mean it's uh, it sounds ridiculous and i also um, wanted to write a character that wasn't necessarily likable 
uh, as it turns out, I don't know how many of the uh, the listeners will have read the book, um, but uh, from everyone I've spoken to who's actually gotten past chapter two, unlike the unlike the Goodreads reviewer, um, you do end up liking her. Um, it's not that she's intentionally unlikable. I actually wanted her to be more unlikable than she turned out to be. Um, but in any case, uh, I, I just didn't want there to be uh, any uh, need for her to... For, for the reader to feel like on board with her morally um, or uh, to be on board with her actions or to approve of them. And also, on top of that, I didn't want to give her any trauma mm. to apologise for her actions. Because often if you do have an unlikable female protagonist, then they're completely... F- I can't swear on your podcast. <laughs> they're, you know, they, they've got some deep scarring and that usually makes the reader feel, you know, it, 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 they forgive the character a little bit. And I didn't want to to to, to um, give Gail any trauma, really. Um, uh, there is just there are just so many books. I mean, even I'm going back to reading Albert um, Camus' um, The Stranger at the moment, um, because whenever I say this to people, they often um, say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, Lolita," and they they name or The Catcher in the Rye, and they name a bunch of books where you've got you know, demonstratively unlikable um, and unsympathetic male characters. Mm. But but there's all the other books that are just regular books where just the men get to be interesting and not necessarily likable. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, so, you know, the stranger, I suppose, because he the character kills someone, <laughs> it does become like, you know, demonstratively unlikable. But even just from the first pages, just from his engaging in the world as a reader, I think you're you're on board because it's going to be interesting, not because you're going to like the character. This is such an interesting subject and topic and something that we could probably spend the rest of this podcast going into. But it's it's so true, I think, what you say. And also um, thinking of Hollywood. And I read this um, incredible article, which I cannot for the life of me remember where or, or who wrote it, on, um, you know, on screen time. Oh, yes, the male glance. Male glance yeah. and, and how... The female characters in in film and television are almost always talking about men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if so, if men aren't present in said scene, yeah. then the sort of point of conversation is relationships, or mm-hmm. it's something about maybe something the man has to do. Yeah. And uh, the more and more I thought about it and started watching films and older films and things that were on Netflix at the time. I saw exactly what they were saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for me, it wasn't a case of, you know, actively trying to not have it be interested in men. I just I just wanted uh, to write a female character who I would find to be intellectually and philosophically interesting. Um, because, I, I mean, I, it, it is in some way, it is in some ways a novel of ideas or, or you know, it, it's engaging with um, politics um, it's engaging with um, with moral uh, philosophy, um, with ethics, um, and and because of that, uh, th- that's that's an that's an area of interest. You know, that's that's something that I read for. Most of the books that I read that I love I have got some um, kind of arguments uh, working against each other. Each chapter of the book, and you mentioned sort of the structure and the span of ten years. Shows a day in Gail's life over the decades. So, was this a conscious structural decision from the off, or like you were saying, you didn't quite know where the book was going? Did it? Is it just something that you decided that's the way it would be written? Mm-hmm. 
it was one way of um, pl- uh, playing into my strengths and avoiding my weaknesses. <laughs> I'm really bad. I shouldn't. I should give the reviewers all the <laughs> all the info of what to poke at. Good readers listening. <laughs> but I'm really bad at getting people into rooms. Um, all of that logistical stuff, like n- n- um, the narration in between chapters, I find that really difficult. What I what I find to be enjoyable, right? Um, to write, um, and that I feel kind of comes more naturally to me is to write scenes. Um, and so it's like I suppose from kind of a theater brain, maybe I, I did study theater and things, so maybe that's where that comes from. And so. Uh, one way to do that was to have all of the, you know, most of the book take place in front of you and to have very little um, what we call summary um, in between. Um, and so, but the but the structure of the 10 or actually, I think there's about 16 days um, in the book that are given, the structure um, arose accidentally in that I had, I was about three chapters in and I, I, I always start with these ways of making it a little bit easier for myself. So the way that I, you know, to, to trick yourself into writing a novel, because I'd written two before and like I, I knew how hard it was going to be. And so just the way that I tricked myself to think it would be easier was to say, I'll just write uh, chapters that work as short stories. And then if it, I decide the novel doesn't have legs, I can just publish the short story, turn, you know, wrap, package them up as short stories and then find the next thing. Um, and so uh, because of that, the kind of shape of each, it, it, you know, it had an arc of a day. Um, and, and then I was three chapters in and I remember saying to my partner, each chapter is a day so far. Maybe I should do the whole book where each chapter is a day. And he said, no, you definitely you shouldn't do that. <laughs> So <laughs> never tell me don't do something. <laughs> and it, I mean, it became like an absolute headache in the end because, you know, like it, it's so hard to because it jumps 10 years. So you're, it's so hard to, to catch the reader up. It would just have been so easy to have a section where you kind of literally narrate what's happened in the meantime. Instead, I had to show it um, um, and just have the re- reader glean it magically through what they could observe um, who was in a room and where that, you know, where it was taking place. Um, so it's a it's it, it, it's a big onus I was putting on the reader, mm. but um, well, thanks to your partner for that for no. the onus. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, you'd, you'd written two novels before. I assume these are in a drawer or something somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I, um, in my first novel, you can read it if you fly to New Zealand and you go to a specific library into the special collections room and you stay in there for the duration of reading the novel <laughs> because you're not allowed to take it out of the room nor are you able to access it dig- digitally. <laughs> what, what is this novel or place? Or what, what do you mean? Well, is it full of state secrets or something? <laughs> oh, it's well, it's full of the secrets of how someone learns how to write a novel. <laughs> Um, I did. Uh, I was living in New Zealand for seven years. I, I did a PhD um, at Victoria University in Wellington, and half of it was actually a PhD in English. Right. And I had never. I didn't do an MFA. I'd, ne- I'd never done any writing courses at all. I, I, I didn't even know what point of view was. I, I, I had no idea. Um, I had written poetry, but I'd never taken a creative writing course, and. Um, because of a dramatic series of events, which I'll never reveal to the public, <laughs> in my in my my career that I had going at the time, I needed to make a dramatic cut, and I really wanted to write a novel. And the way to do that, I thought, is to have to write one. 
Um, so I applied for this PhD where 50% would be to write a novel. Um, so it wasn't in the creative writing school. It was in the Department of English. So I had to also write then a kind of literature thesis. And part of the reason for that was because I can't think of anything worse than having to write about your own process. And the creative writing PhDs that you can do, you have to write a thesis that's somehow connected to your... And that I couldn't do. So I just thought I'll... I'll go the English literature route, but route route. But the um, the downside of that was that my supervisors weren't writers. Now one of them wrote poetry, but but they were you know they were academics, mm. so they also didn't know um, what was going wrong. Um, the answer was everything. Uh, it made no sense. Like if I began, it, it was. Uh, I mean, if I if I began to describe this novel to you. you You'd be so curious, you'd probably buy flights to New Zealand because it's such a. Um, I'm on the internet here, <laughs> just looking them up now. Um, but uh, it was absolutely fabulous um, experience to have just like such a warm, fuzzy feelings th- feelings thinking of these two supervisors, kind of very classic Kiwi Kiwi characters. So you know they're quite like shy and um, you know introverted, um, and uh, they kind of looked at each other very very briefly and kind of said. Um, I think it's strange that we're in May's head now, even though for the rest of the book we were in Rowan's. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, you're not, you're not supposed to do that, are you? I said, I don't think you're just supposed to do it randomly on page 100 and then never again. <laughs> so Yeah, good notes. It's yeah. good notes. So, but, but, but that, that novel, because I'd written poetry up to then, I knew that this PhD was a way to learn. And I wanted to learn. I did not want to publish whatever I wrote. So if I really wanted to learn, I needed to write into my weaknesses. Mm. So basically write all the, the narration and getting people into rooms. But but um, so what I wasn't good, what I maybe was okay at would have been language and um, character from the theatre background and from poetry. What I wouldn't be good at would be structure and plot. <laughs> Two pretty big things. Uh, so, so I'm told. I mean, you know. <laughs> so in order to kind of, you know, in order to really have to develop those skills, I wrote a science fiction novel. Um, because you, re- it's really quite hard to escape having a really good structure. Um, and, um, um, and so, yes, it was, it was absolutely excruciating. Wow. So after finishing that, because it was so torturous to write, like really <laughs> torturous, uh, I then wanted to indulge um, and so I wrote a novel that was basically a prose poem you know it was um, very very um, dark and difficult um, and um, so the or- Orchid and the Wasp is uh, is my third and ho- hopefully it's kind of it's neither one or the other in the sense that um, it, it is just what it needs to be and it's not me working out my emotional <laughs> baggage on a reader yeah <laughs> my yeah <laughs> Okay, so so there are two other novels we can we can find, but we're really going to have to look for them, is what you're saying. <laughs> you're really going to have to want to read those two. Um, well, let, let's talk about your poetry just very briefly, because you are an award-winning poet. Was it something you have always done? Did you just think at one stage of your career that, that that's what you'd be? You'd be a poet and maybe a playwright and not even think about novels? Yeah, I, I well, I didn't start reading novels until very late. So I grew up reading poetry and plays. Um, my well, partly because of what was in the house, um, there were mo- mostly poetry and plays. And uh, so, 
by the time I realized that I'd been reading poetry and plays and not what everyone else was reading, I then found novels to be utterly intimidating. I mean, even Nancy Drew, like I, I, I was I was daunted by the presence of those things in the house. And I knew that my siblings were starting to read them. And um, and then I started to get kind of a bit aggro about it, you know, like uh, I felt, you know, um, you know, the, to be uh, uh, superior in my ability to read Yevtushenko. And <laughs> um, but no, but I really did love I, I, I'm being a bit facetious there, but I really did love poetry. It felt to me like, um, you know, you had fewer words on the page. There were these slimmer volumes. They were more accessible to me, even if the language was so much more difficult than than, than um, novels. But I, I felt that they were for me. Like there was such an intimacy with poetry books. Um, I really have, you know, rem- just rem- my, my youth, I have so many memories of being in, in rooms on my own with poetry books and feeling like there was someone else in the room. Um and so, uh, but then this kind of thing about the novel did start to build up as a problem, you know, and I did terribly in school. I, I had um, I had a great time with, you know, with with my friends, just pissing ourselves, laughing every day. But I, 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 did, I did terribly and I didn't like the system and I completely riled against it. Um, um, so by the time I actually got round to reading novels was really in university. I read a, a few before university. My parents bought me this um, banned books box there was about 10 um, banned books in it mm, 10 or 12 like nice. a, you know a clockwork orange and a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich and um and Lolita and all, all that kind of thing and I absolutely loved and the master and margarita uh which just became like my f- the first you know love of uh, uh of fiction and um and so then throughout university uh I was writing poetry I wrote a couple of bad plays and then uh, I moved to New Zealand after my master's in at Queen's and I couldn't write poetry anymore. This sounds so contrived, but it's really true that the landscape there was so different. I mean, Belfast is all dark, dank back rooms and people having conversations and smoking oh. and, you know, with little, with biros and scrabby bits of paper, you know, and, and New Zealand was like this uproarious bright blue playful and just expanse of mountains and I love the outdoors so um I didn't know what to do with myself um you know probably coupled with the cultural difference as well and I was on my own I didn't know anyone um so but I started to get upset about not writing um and uh and then I thought eventually I thought the way around this will be to 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 change to change what I'm trying to write totally and it seemed like the novel form might be more suited to that landscape. So that was how. Um, and by then, I had actually read some novels. <laughs> you know, I, I, I always think it's really creepy if people want to write and they haven't read. Yeah. You know, like it's so... I, I, <laughs> That's not... I, I don't... Is that pos- possible? Well, it happens. I've taught lots of courses where I've you know, said... And I love their honesty, but I have said, you know, how, do you read? Like, and, and, then, and then I'll say, not, not to test them, but to really make them reflect on this. I'll say, can you tell me, can you write down five or ten books that you've read? I mean, the amount of people that can't get past three, and they're in a creative writing course at university. No. Yes. That's, that's bon- that seems bonkers to me, though. 
I mean, it's it's the reality. Wow. Like, and, and I mean, I, I I relate to that because I didn't read until I was, you know, seventeen, really. Not fiction. I read all the time, but I did, if you were to ask me about novels, and so um, that that's that's really it, it's useful. I found it's useful. Um, so because then there's always this moment at university for people who end up loving books. There's always this moment where you're like completely overwhelmed by the library and like almost uh, have a panic attack at how much you want to read everything and how much you're not going to be able to um, and so even if you can bring that moment if you can carry it forward a year earlier for those students it's it's maybe helpful because then they'll start they'll have that one more year in their life where they get to read books yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and and it's great that you got sent that box of banned books from your parents and you actually read them because when I was at university I had read some novels uh, before I went, but um, I certainly didn't, you know, I wasn't planning a bit of time to, you know, sit in my room and read much, but I used to put a copy of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas just, like, in my jeans pocket, just walking around with it, because I was like, you know... We could have been friends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people will see that and think, oh, he's he's a bit intelligent. Yeah. You know, he's cool. I'd have Pablo Neruda. Yeah, you'd have Pablo Neruda. I'd I'd have Hunter S. Thompson. We'd be like, hey... Double espresso. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you actually read yours, and eventually I did uh, too. <laughs> um, that's so interesting about the land, you know, landscape changing the way that you would write. Who do you cite as some of your sort of favourite poets and inspiration? Now, I must say, for the last few years, I've been reading so, so much more fiction than I have poetry. But, and I, and I, and I hope, I, I feel an enormous appetite building up. I hope to take a few months off writing fiction um, maybe later this year and, and uh, try and finish a second poetry book. And then I'll get to just, how, I'll have an excuse just to read poetry nonstop for a month, you know, and, um, and catch up on all the books I've been ordering <laughs> that are building up my, on my shelf. But, um, but poets I've really loved in the last few years. Sinead Morrissey's probably my all-time favourite poet. Um, and that might sound a bit uh, that might sound too convenient because I was at Queen's and she was uh, the writer in residence at Queen's when I first got there but I think she's uh, on a platform on her all of her own I think she's extraordinary Um, and her books are they're exactly the types of poetry books you should buy because you can read them there's there's no they don't uh, wear out after two or three reads as sometimes happens with poetry books even more, it often happens with fiction, less so with poetry, but it still can happen. And um, besides Sinead Marcy, obviously, along with the whole rest of the world, I fell in love with Ocean Vuong. Um, and I and I and probably a, six months or nine months before he won, before Sinead Marcy and he both won the uh, was it the T. S. Eliot Prize and and the, and the Forward Prize in the same year. Um, I had uh, email evidence of various people I had uh, emailed and had asked for poetry recommendations and I'd said, Sinead Morrissey and Ocean Vuong, (laughs) Um, I need a medal. (laughs) (laughs) You were there first, that's what you're trying to say. I also picked the sellout, uh, Paul Beatty's The Sellout, um, as the the Booker winner that year. Um, And he's a poet and you can see that from the first sentence. Mm. But anyway, um, before I was giving myself compliments, what was I saying? Uh, Oh yes, uh, Matthew Dickman. I love. Now, again, he's a he's an American poet whose style seems like others should have had it before. You know, it seems like ju- just you know that it, that it should have been there all along, but it really hasn't been. 
Um, so I'm excited uh, if if you haven't come across him um, to go and and he reads his own stuff brilliantly, um, which is always really exciting mm. when you do. Um, you want that from a poet, don't you? You do, you do. As a poet yourself, sometimes uh, <laughs> sometimes you don't want that. I've done I've done readings where the other poets have been so good that even though I thought I'd done a good job, my books didn't sell and the other ones did, you know? So there's a couple of poets that I'm never going to read with again because they're, <laughs> they're too good. <laughs> never put me on a panel with them. Yeah, no, no. But I think you're doing yourself a, a little disservice there because you are narrating your own audiobook for this novel. Yes, they let me. So you've got to be, you've got to be all right at reading, surely. Uh, well, I mean, I can't, I can't uh, be the judge of that, but um, the, 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 I did audition for the audiobook. So I did give them an out. <laughs> uh, but now I'm really realising, having, having done it, I'm delighted to, that I got to do it because there, the book is quite tricky to narrate. And I, you know, you, you, you probably wouldn't get so much lead time to read the book before you have to perform it. And I know the sentences, you know, I know so much of it by heart. And if I, I just can't imagine how you'd be able to read some of the sentences out loud if you didn't know them by heart. But so, um, for example, I decided at some point to use Anglo-Saxon words over Latinate whenever I could for Gale and always to use monosyllabic words over polysyllabic words. Um, it's something about the voice of the book is inflected by Gale's flintiness. Um, and so... Uh, you, that looks I liked the way it looked on the page uh, I liked the way it, it sounded in the reader's ear in the reader's brain as they read however <laughs> there is a difference between how it sounds in your brain and how it is to speak aloud so I really am feeling the pain of that like it's basically like a tongue twister <laughs> the whole book um, but it's really really good fun um, so I'm, I'm really thrilled they let me do it I might not get to do it again for future books because I'm pretty sure the next novel um, will be uh, a male character uh, and it's first person, so it wouldn't really make sense. But an, an amazing opportunity, and I would imagine it, it sort of reconnects you with the novel again or makes you sort of... I mean, how many authors would actually sit down once their book's been published and read it, actually read it aloud, and you're getting to do that? So have you sort of rediscovered it a bit or learnt something more about it through this process? The only thing I'd say there is that you get sick of your own book for a period about four or five months before it comes out before, because before it goes to press you have to you get these passes you get first pass and second pass and third pass and every time you get the manuscript back all typeset you have to read it again but you have to read it like with an eagle's eye and so, I, I mean, my, I, I'm so sick of looking at it just now <laughs> that I wish the audio recording were, like, in a few months' time when I could, like, care, you know. And it's not that I, you know, I, that I'm kind of embarrassed of it or I don't like it, which, which is bound to happen. That always happens with my work. I always hate it after a certain amount of time. But um, it's just, uh, yeah, um, it's just a bit more time away from... <laughs> From it might have been have good. Yeah. yeah, okay, fair enough. I think we can all understand that. In a few more questions about the book and, and a few more about the characters. And Gail's mother is a conductor in the book. And the way that you talk about classical music, about an orchestra and the relationship between conductor and orchestra 
made me think that you must be a classical music fan or a music fan at least and that you probably grew up around classical music uh, yeah I did I was um I'm an absolutely horrible musician <laughs> um really bad and actually my violin teacher was the person who introduced me to Yevtushenko little did my parents know that I wasn't actually playing violin during my violin lessons I was reading poetry with my violin teacher because I was that useless of a violinist that he thought it was a better use of my time. And, you know, he was right. <laughs> well, we've, got, we've got him to thank in some yeah. ways. Well, you know, um, I do owe him something because, um, you know, because especially because I, I wasn't getting on well in school. Uh, I really just didn't get on with my teachers. And he re- it, it really mattered, actually, having somebody who picked up on the fact that this kid is interested in art this is not their form and um, they seem to like words and she seems to be scanning the bookshelves all the time when she's coming in here and she seems to be talking about toying around with writing poems so um, I'm going to foster that um, and you know do a cursory kind of 15 minutes of scales <laughs> just to keep everyone's kind of sense of a, a, a desire to commit suicide alive <laughs> at least at a subliminal level um, yeah so, so I grew up I did grow up playing music there were five children in my family and we all learned how to play. I say learned how to play the violin <laughs> and the piano. And I mean, my brothers playing the violin is some of the funniest <laughs> memories I have. <laughs> Something about, you know, kind of a very active, hyper boys being forced. <laughs> I think it's because once you have an instrument, then you want to share it around, you know, because instruments oh. aren't cheap. And not that, you know, if you've got five kids, you have to be conscious of that kind of thing. But um, and then my sister and I, actually my two sisters and I, were all played in an orchestra, um, and um, youth Galway youth orchestra, and and, and that was a that was a, a way of mostly getting to know music. I mean, I mostly airboat, uh, which is where you don't t- quite touch <laughs> touch the horse hairs of the of the bow onto the string, um, and that works actually. <laughs> very well as long as everybody else isn't also airbowing so the trick is to find the string section where there's enough players that are slightly better than you so that there'll be some sound emanating from the section <laughs> and I mean I did this right through my adulthood like I, I, I played in really bad amateur orchestras oh this is terrible I hope nobody from the orchestras listens and thinks well you know we're not that amateur um and uh, I just airboat, <laughs> but you get you know lovely free tea and biscuits at the break. <laughs> yeah, always got a good little chat, have yeah. a natter. It's it's just so lovely. I just find orchestras to be inherently comical. <laughs> <laughs> but the violin's the most unforgiving of instruments when you're first learning it. I it mean, is. scratching away across that. If you're a neighbour or a teacher or a parent, you know, yeah. goodness me, you've got got to put up with months of really. It is infuriating yeah. noise. If you learned the violin, your parents really love you. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. Um, but no, so I love I love music, um, and I listen to a lot of music, and I love classical music. Um, I can't do anything when I listen to music. Like I can't do anything at the same time. <laughs> so oh. uh, if I'm listening to music, I'm just listening to music. You can't. You won't run. Or? No, if I'm running, I listen to podcasts. And you couldn't write with music? No. I can write with instrumental music. Um, Actually, weirdly, I find classical music to be too emotive. Mm. So I tend to listen to kind of um, neoclassical 
um, electronica kind of stuff. Um, Bit of Brian Eno, maybe? Yeah, yeah. And um, say Prince de Panta and Nils Fram and people like, I, know, uh, I have a weird, um, and, I, and I, I don't know loads of people that I should know. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so I listen to this kind of um, instrumental music sometimes when I'm writing. But if there's a lyric to be found in the whole album, I'll, I'll be anticipating it and my brain will linger on it. Um, I'm absolutely hopeless with, when there's lyrics on. And my, my poor partner, you know, because he loves music and wants to have it on in the house all the time. But if I'm reading, I can't listen to music. So um, I just zone in on the lyrics and zone in on that, the story that's going on in that art form. Um, so if I so so when I even though I don't uh, you know have as much music in my life as other people who say they love music, and um, when I'm listening to it, I'm really listening to it. I must admit, I'm jealous of the art form. I do think music is like I just think it's the best. <laughs> I mean, I I just think it like what music has over writing is that it creates an atmosphere immediately. It immerses you against your will. For a book to immerse you, even if it's open on a desk in a room, you have to walk into that room, you have to sit down in front of it, and you have to kind of decide to read it. And then even in deciding to read it, it may not speak to you. You know, um, so there's something about music that has, um, it has all these capacities that, um, that I'm so envious of. Um, but from trying to play it, I do know the difference between liking something um, and, <laughs> and being good at it. And also, you know, uh, loving something and being passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So like I'm passionate about writing, um, whereas uh, I've never been passionate about playing music. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the fact that you have tried or that you were in a orchestra airbowing your way yeah. through, you know, uh, gives you... Uh, an appreciation for it as well and what when you do go and watch a, a concert or you're listening do you not find that 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 just reinforces how much you how much respect you have for the art itself and the people that have gone through all those hours of learning and ha- are now at the top of their game well yeah I must say weirdly when I say I'm jealous of music what I would want to do as a musician would be to write music Ah, so like because now like I I am in awe of people who can play music and everything but if I'm being honest composers it's composers who I'm jealous of (laughs) I think we're all jealous of composers aren't we but then I mean really interestingly when I was writing this book one of the I didn't do very much research for anything I I, anything that makes me procrastinate I tend not to do because I'm such a good procrastinator that I'll procrastinate on research for several years (laughs) so um, limited research but one of the things I did do some cursory research on was um, the the scene of being a young composer and how you can enter into that as a as a professional and um, how difficult it is um, and uh, it, it's really it's really it was really quite daunting to discover how hard it is to get your music recorded you need to get it recorded to have it performed because people need to hear recordings of it um, and uh, so there's such an expense and I suppose it's um, it would be like as a writer relying on um, grants mm. from the government um, which, which which no writer should rely on and, and no writer does um, uh, so so that was kind of surprising so pragmatically I'm not jealous we're back to not jealous we're back to happy being being a writer <laughs> I made no points 
we've come full circle. Equally, there are people who'll who'll be very jealous of authors, I guess, you know. Um, so we're all living in that sort of world of yes. being jealous of each other. Yes, grass, grass is always, always greener, greener etc., etc. Yeah. <laughs> you talked in the past about the importance of not rushing to write, to wait perhaps until one is a bit older in order to truly write a, a not the novel you want. Is that something you still think? Is that something that you lived by as well? So if, I, if I'm right, I, I don't think I said that you should wait to write until you're older. I think I said you should wait to publish. I think you're right. I yeah. think you said yeah. that. Yeah. Because there's a big difference. Because I wish I'd started really writing earlier. I mean, I wrote, I was publishing poems at like 14. I'm, I'm one of those, you know, absolutely obnoxious people no, that should have no friends and doesn't really have many. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and I'm, and it's so embarrassing and terrible. And I spent so many. I worked for Google even in the hopes that I might be able to take things off the internet. Um, but no, you know, they, I didn't say in the interview, but like that's what I was there for. Um, and you got the job <laughs> at Google. Yeah. And did you manage to take them off the internet? No. It's that they're actually you can't really do. I mean, anyway, that's its own boring story. But um, so so part of that advice is coming from experience of uh, give yourself like let yourself grow up and don't expose um, your own learning to the public because it's not it's not fair on your later self you won't be able to take it back but anyway that that maybe speaks to my own um, problems with regret and um, and all of that Um, but I do wish that I had started writing more earlier um, because it, it's a, it's a, you have to write um, the bad stuff out of your system. You have to, you have to write your way into having the ability to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really believe that. I mean, you know, I've thrown out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words, um, and I don't regret a single hundred thousand words that I wrote that I threw out. Um, so, but I wished I had done it earlier because, um, because then, you know, I might have written Orchid and the Wasp um, seven years ago. Um, or 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 there there are other stories that that, that could have come in between, um, or, or this book would be different or whatever you know. But but the the point is is that the 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 more you write the better, um, and it's great to be writing early. But the problem is the balance there is if you're writing a lot, you will start to be tempted to want to publish, and I don't think anybody should publish before they're twenty one. Uh, at the earliest, mm, that even that seems young to me. But, yeah, I mean, I, and but there's low. There are loads of novels that come out. I mean, White, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. She was 23, wasn't she? Yeah, she was really young. Yeah. Um, and even you know, um, Lena Dunham's memoir. I think she was 30, uh, 23 as well. I mean, that's too young, in my opinion. Mm. Now, again, if you reverse narrativize everything, nothing, nothing I'm saying makes any sense because look at Zadie Smith's career and her writing is incredible, and she doesn't need to be embarrassed about that book at all. Obviously not, but um, but just as a rule in general. And it does sound like a little. It does. I, I worry that it sounds like disingenuous advice. That it sounds like the advice of like a bitter. <laughs> but but you know, especially if I'm talking to students, I don't want them because there's also it's a nice temptation. The prospect of publishing as well, it you know helps you along. Um, and I think you should submit to competitions, but I think that's different to publishing. Um, I just wary of your mental health, you know. Um, and I, I know I'd be in an asylum if I'd published a novel when I was uh, 22. And Keelan worked for Google, and she can't get her own poems off the internet, kids. So, <laughs> you know, that means, that means they're there for life. 
I know, I'll stop. I won't go into that because I'll start all the bad um, um, hormones will start releasing. No, we went, we're not going to go into that. <laughs> we're not going to go into that. We're going to concentrate on the fact that Orchid and the Wasp is published in June. June 7th. June the 7th. Um, it's absolutely wonderful novel and you should be very, very pleased with it. Thank you. And you're already writing second one, so you know the experience was obviously not too awful for you <laughs> oh it's it's you know you get to the end of a book like I, I the, when I get to the last fifth of a book I'm so blissed out now I'm like I'm I, I, I have no hair left on my head and I've no pigment in my skin because I've just been in the cave like put you know scratching at my skin all day and and I, I'm a hideous mess but I am ecstatic <laughs> when I get to the end of a book um however it takes me four fifths of the way through to get to that point, and the first four fifths um, are, are hell. So, <laughs> so it's really, really just not a not a recommended uh, profession. <laughs> so you're on your own, hours and end, yeah. scratching at your skin. Yeah, yeah okay. you get a Goodreads review with one star from someone who only read two chapters. <laughs> it's all, this sounds great, you know. Um, no, it really is great, and uh, wish you all the best with it. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been lovely.